Welcome to the first ever question time from Turf Business. Uh, we're here today at St George's Park and I'm joined by uh, an expert panel and uh, an audience of experts as well for, across the industry. Uh, first off, I'll introduce our panel. I'm joined by Paul Ashcroft from Arsenal FC, Jim Croxton from Bigger, Alison Robinson from Myersco, Jeff Webb, IOG, and James Bledge from Royal St. Ports Golf Club. Okay. Um, so we'll get straight into things, and our first question, I believe, is from Roy Rigby from Manchester City. So, Roy. Yeah, good morning, everybody. Uh, one of the questions I need to put to everybody in the room, especially the panel as well, uh, I've, over the last few years, I've had a few concerns about young people coming into the ground career industry. That's more on the grounds and ship side. Uh, for instance, last two years, we had Tara and K2 come to Man City who uh, was very good, two, two ladies of the team. I feel looking down the line, further down the line now, the apprentices are not coming through, who we want to come through. I mean, for instance, this time, we interviewed, 60, we had 66 people were interviewed at Myerscroft College, which was great, was a, is a really good turnout. And then we, we wound it down to six people. And then we interviewed the six people over at CFA. Only three people turned up. We give one of the persons the job, and that person declined. So I do feel, after talking to a lot of other people in the industry, I do feel we're struggling to get apprentices to come to this industry. Is it because we're not paying the right, the right kind of money? I mean, we're offering at Man City Football Club for apprentices to come in at £10,000. It may seem a lot, but if that person, say, lives at Bolton, we're in, here in Manchester, and they've got to get trams in, the travelling, everything else, is that £10,000 enough money to get people in the industry? Personally, I don't think it is. I know it's not my money. I'm just talking for the bigger picture. I don't, I feel the feel needs to go out to people that there's got to be an incentive there. And I think personally, the money will be an incentive to get people in the industry. And that's my feeling. I just like your comments of everybody, the panel and everybody sat in this room. Thank you. Alison, should we start with you on that as you're very involved in, in bringing those, those people through? Yeah, well, and thanks for that question, Roy. Um, the first thing I would say is I, I think you, know, you do get at Man City a, a lot of applications, far more than you'd get at, at say, um, other football clubs or rugby clubs or, um, you know, on the golf side um, of things. I think it, it is worth bearing in mind a couple of questions. I think, one, the money is one issue. Um, where you're bringing in a 16-year-old, a 16-year-old would be quite happy with um, £10,000 as a, as a starting salary, you know, it gets them going um, in the industry. But once you're starting to look at somebody who's over 18, and often in, in you know, many of our big clubs, because of working hours, um, the, the you know, working time regulations don't work for under 18-year-olds, um, and therefore you do need to be recruiting those over 18s. That then becomes an issue in terms of salary for those those who are over 18. If they've got board and lodgings to pay, they've got transport, and as you, you know, as you as you rightly say, I think <coughs> that is something to consider. I think it's also worth um, us thinking about the entry requirements coming into the industry, because when you are recruiting an apprentice um, at level two, often there is it, there is an, an assumption that you don't need particular qualifications to come in at that level. But then we have to think about what kind of message does that send to students and also to those parents of students about what is the future if you don't need qualifications. Does that, what kind of message does that send? 
And one of the things that we talked about at, at the summit out in Madrid was the thinking about um, the future um, pathways in the industry. Are there clear progression pathways? Now, I know um, the IOG and Bigger have got um, you know, clear pathways through in terms of their own qualifications um, that are on offer. But one of the things that we also talked about in the summit is it is confusing. And I think that the research engine um, question about, you know, what is the thing, you know, that they most think about in terms of education, there is, there is a confusing number of qualifications and different types of qualifications. So when you're thinking about further education qualifications, apprenticeships, you're talking about in-house training and CPD, you're talking about higher education. Not all employers, and certainly not all parents either, of young people understand the differences between the qualifications. And so one of the things that Jim and Jeff and I have talked about is how can we make that the, the qualification pathway clearer to people in both the industries and you know, out in the community as well, because people need to understand how they, they move between the different kinds of qualifications so that they can, they can see what those clear, clear, clear progression pathways are. And I think alongside that, we need some really good case studies and role models showing what, you know, what kind of qualifications that you need. Again, the research engine um, 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 research and findings, we're also talking about um, support for leadership and management. And I think people need to see about where can they go in their industry when they're moving up to supervisory level. And one, one of the conversations that Jeff and I have certainly talked about is um, how can we put on and develop something very specific for um, groundsmen and for greenkeepers who will want to move up into those supervisory roles, um, particularly when you are working with um, um, governors or boards, if you like, how do you prepare those broad board papers? Should we be developing a leisure management qualification very specific um, to the industry? that helps people see what those career progression pathways are. And actually then you can start to see how you can start to move up in the industry. But it does come back to salary, you know, the question that Roy raised right at the beginning. Um, you, know, you need to have you know, a clear progression pathway in every single one of your organisations, which shows where you can go, but we need to be promoting that through the industry bodies as well. Okay. Jeff, did you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, I'd echo a lot of what Alison's just said as well, but I think, um, what, what we've been looking at is um, I think there's an in, indefinable um, system out there at the moment, which is nobody's really ever tried to classify what the quality of a grass turf pitch is, for example. And that's why we've gone for what we're calling the National Framework for Natural Turf, which includes a pitch grading pyramid, which has all your technical components down one side and all your education components down the other. And the point of that is it takes you on a journey from coming in as a volunteer if you want to get a certification just to be a volunteer on a, on a weekend, through to getting uh, a foundation degree if you want to get into the man cities of the future and that sort of thing. The other thing I would echo is I've, I've come from a background that is not to do with this sector. So my training was I left school at 16. I only had GCSEs. Um, I didn't have very good ones. I went into employment straight away at 16. I became an accounts clerk for seven years. And then I went back and did a degree to get into the industry that I'm now in. So I ended up going into um, tennis administration first and then football administration after that. And all my training has been management-focused, management background. And one thing I've seen from the horticulture industry, which I think is a complete missing link all the way through from apprenticeship level, all the way through to the foundation degree, is what you said about management. Because you can have all the names of the Latin plants that you need, but that won't sell you a budget or it won't get you 
the lighting rig you need, <coughs> or whatever it may be. And I think we've got to reverse all that thinking. We've got to build it in all the way through, all the way through, so people are more confident. And then it backs up, I think, what you're saying. Mass and English is a key thing. Um, we were doing frontline apprenticeships for quite a long time ourselves. And the biggest failure was if you took somebody on those courses and they didn't have a grasp of maths and English, they're, gonna, you, you, they're a hostage to fortune, they're just going to fail. And we've got to upskill what we've got. We can't just sit there and accept what a lazy career um, person giving advice in a school thinks, well, I can't find a fit for this kid, so let's put him in horticulture. We've actually got, got to resell it and repackage it as a profession that people want to get into, want to get attracted to. And just on the case study thing, I mean, it just, just happens to be good timing for yeah. us. Last week, you might have seen that we've um, uh, basically, we've, we're now spending money with a PR agency to upsell this industry. It's as simple as that. And we're, and we're throwing serious money at it over the next three years. And that is all to do what you've just said about providing that case study evidence that you need, getting advocates out there, and getting the whole industry to look at this industry and be proud of it. I mean, one, one thing I think we're a little bit in danger of is, is only focusing on the negative. Um, there is a lot of positive out there, um, but there are a lot of challenges. So, for example, when people look at our industry from outside in, what do they see? The research that we've just got back shows there's less than 1% of females working on the tools in the sports sector. Why is that when you look at, say, the RHS and horticulture <coughs> and... I was at Chelsea Flower Show with a whole range of bodies. We did a breakfast meeting. We took the young IOG board there. We had a female from Tottenham come in uh, to talk about what she was doing. She was a gardener at the training um, centre. Um, there's just not enough representation. There's not enough BME representation either. So it's almost, we're, we're viewed from outside as a bit of a, a non-entity, a, a closed shop, and that's one of the things that, that we're going to have to tackle. Um, society's changed and we're going to have to change with it. James, from your experience, are you having similar problems to Roy attracting people? Or? Yeah, so we've uh, we've done not too bad with apprentices recently, but I think the pay, going back to the pay thing, uh, that's obviously an issue for a lot of, a lot of uh, youngsters. But uh, you're talking 16, 17 year old. We've all been there. We've all lived at home with our parents, and it's easy that way. Uh, but we've always tried to sell it as a, a kind of it's like like a college education, but you're getting a bit of pocket money for it, and it's important to kind of enthuse that and inst install that in them that like, you'll get through the next few years on 10 grand a year and look what you could get. You know, you can show examples and y of, of the wage scale and uh, you can get right to the top like yourself, Roy, uh, and top course managers. But it's, uh, I think going back to the, the, the colleges, I think it's important that uh, they seek advice from course managers and top groundsmen as to what, like the, the gaps in the, the training and education. I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of, when I was at college, there was a lot of wasted time learning foreign languages and stuff as part of the college. I don't know if you still do that, but uh, I'm glad we're away from that now. But the, uh, I think there's still a lot of gaps in what my apprentices are learning just now and not enough focus on uh, more of your uh, irrigation type things. I mean, learning Latin names as opposed to spending time learning about uh, irrigation design and stuff is very important. But yeah, I mean, it does, the money thing is a, an issue for a lot of youngsters, but if they can kind of overlook that and see the bright future they can have with just being patient for a few years, I think that's good. Do you feel there's a benefit of like the college sending tutors into schools and rural schools to try and like educate people? Because I, I get the feeling talking to other people or the youngest generation, they think they need to have money 
and they, need, they, need, they think they have got to like buy into the college where they haven't too. Do you not feel that could be the way forward for the industry? People to go in, but I know it's a big ask for the college because you're overstretched and I do appreciate that. But it's just another thing I think we just need to consider. If the value is there, I think we need to look at it. I think, um, I think colleges would love to do that, but colleges don't have the, the financial wherewithal to do that. Um, the school and, and, and college sector is financially struggling as a whole at the moment with 10 years of austerity. Um, further education colleges had a 30% cut in funding in the last 10 years, um, and there's no sign of that improving at the moment. Um, there's a third of colleges in, in, with financial problems at the moment around the country. Um, many of them are failing, merging. So uh, at the moment, until there's a major change of government policy, that's not going to be the case. What, what colleges such as ourselves are doing are, are trying to increase um, the numbers of students and young people who come in on taste-of-day type activities, um, you know, who come in for events. Um, one of the things I do as a, as a principal of college is invite head teachers in. Because for me, you know, we have to change the people who are the influences in the schools. So I've been inviting head teachers in and taking them on a whole tour of the college and talking about things like, you know, the sports turf industry, talking about the kind of students, you know, like, um, you know, Paul Burgess at Real Madrid, for example, is an example and a really good role model and saying, you know, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of salary that you can achieve, the kind of status and jobs you can achieve by coming in, you know, through the college and through the industry. And, and I think it's about giving those really positive role models you know, and sharing them with head teachers so they understand the opportunities. They then go back into their school you know, really inspired and saying, well, you know, I, you know, I've just been down to my school college today. And do you know, do you know, you know, you can go and do a job like this? You know, are you aware of these opportunities? The, the other thing, you know, I, and again, I talked about it at, at Real Madrid, was we've got to repackage what we're offering. And I talked about in, in, in Madrid about as, you know, promoting it as a STEM subject as a science, technology, engineering and math subjects. Um, and if we, if we do that, we'll raise the profile and we'll raise the status of the industry as well. You'll start to attract the very best students out of schools by you know, raising that scientific element of it. And I think that, that again, will help to bring in you know, more young people from different diverse backgrounds um, and, and make the, the industry seem different. Jim, have you got something from Biggie's <coughs> perspective? Yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I need to take issue with something Jeff said. I know how old Jeff is, and there's no way he did GCSEs. They were, <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were O levels in your day. Um, I did GCSEs. I was the first year. Um, seriously, you wouldn't believe. I still you. got my hair though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, now. You, you'll never, you'll never be as tall as me. Um, <laughs> all right, we'll stop there. <laughs> I think there's a couple of things. I think um, something Alison said, which I think is absolutely relevant, certainly in the golf industry, and I assume it's the same in, in football and others. Um, the starting salary isn't necessarily the issue. The, the, the progression is the issue. And, and I know James will know this. I see a bunch of golf guys in, in the room, and you can be earning not a lot more than you were on day one, kind of five years in. Right. And that, that isn't attractive to a young person. Um, so I think we've got a job to do with our employers to explain that... Um, Certainly, if we want young people nowadays, that progression opportunity and being able to show that is absolutely critical because parents are not pointing their children towards a career which is going to be stagnant pay-wise over a period of time. Um, so I think that's something that's really important. I think, um, I think the, the, uh, the schools into stadium, is that the right name, Jeff, that you've done, I think, is something that we've been doing um, in a really loose way. And I think having seen what you've done with that opportunity for us, that most of the guys that I've met that are successful in greenkeeping have come from 
one of two or three backgrounds, but actually being golfers, um, James, you're a keen golfer, um, and I've actually played golf with you, he's a good golfer as well. Um, a lot of the guys in here, Darren's a keen golfer, are keen golfers. These people are perhaps more premeditated towards having a career in this sport. I don't know if that just translates into, into the field of, of groundsmanship. I think it does in cricket, and, and one or two others, not necessarily in others. Um, we as, a, as an organisation, first of all, the money we have to spend on initiatives is our members' money. The members pay subscriptions in and we get a little bit off our trade guys. And I feel slightly uncomfortable spending a lot of that money to try and effectively benefit golf clubs rather than greenkeepers. Albeit mm. a greenkeeper is benefited by having more people in his team. But effectively, if, if we attract more people in the industry, you're benefiting football if we, if we get more guys into... We're benefiting Manchester City Football Club and I'm not sure many people other than me as a Man City fan are terribly keen to benefit Man City Football Club. But... Um, so we've got to be careful how much money we spend on this, but I think the initiative you're doing, whereby you can light some fires in people, you can give somebody that opportunity that somebody's already predisposed potentially to sport to come into a stadium and see it and think, wow, I could work in here. I know that we're seeing success at golf club level with guys engaging with their junior section or with a local school and coming in and doing hopefully on a nice sunny day rather than a day like today and showing what a day on the golf course looks like. I think if you ask... IOG or Myasco or, or, or bigger to do that, and we say, right, how are we going to go and talk to 3,000 high schools in the country? We simply can't do it. But there's 2,500 golf clubs in the country, so perhaps they can engage once a year with a local school or something, and, and in, yeah. or, or with your junior section. And just because you want, you're looking for one, one every now and then, one every six months or a mm. year. You, we can't solve this by saying we need an extra 6,000 people who's going to find them. We've got to find them kind of one or two at a time, I think. We do host turf visits with the local yeah. schools. Um, the amount of people we've found that's interested in that after is very few. Really? Um, I think, seeing as London as well, there's a lot more brighter lights out than what than what we do. Or bigger clubs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll leave that one there. Yeah. That's my one. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where we find it, especially London, um, yeah. trying to keep the people interested who we do get. And it's like we said, when you get maybe three, four years into their career, if they haven't started to progress yeah. more, it's where they where they can go, look at different avenues to, to earn money that equals what they get paid and probably less hours as well. So that's where, same as you, Roy, um, the apprenticeship side is also a difficult one because when we look at the wages we have to pay them, we have to pay the minimum wage. Also, we can't have someone who's below 16 because of health and safety. So all of a sudden now, we're getting to the point where that person's earning the same amount of money as what a normal, mm. probably someone who's coming into the industry maybe two, three years into his career. So we tend to lose that point where, yeah, the apprenticeship's something that it's worthwhile for us to do. Okay. Unfortunately, that's where we are as a club. So for me, the difficult thing is also headcount. They come under headcount. And if the club at the moment in time is saying no to headcount, then even if it's an apprenticeship, it doesn't work for us. I know it's not what everybody wants to hear, but that's no. where we're at. I think we're at the point as well now where we need to reevaluate our strategy for bringing people into the industry because, um, speaking for, for golf, we launched a new uh, Level 2 Trailblazer apprenticeship about two, two and a half years ago. We've got just under 600 people on that now going through the college. A lot of them with yourself, as it's been a huge success. I don't know how many of those 600 people are going to go on to be a James Bledge or a, or a Lee Strutt. That, yeah. that's, they're not necessarily coming in for that reason, but we've got to make sure we're bringing in, um, we're attracting people to, to work at all levels of the industry. Um, 
it, it might be that some guys are going to start on 10 grand at 16 and, and find their way through the career. But we're also we're missing a trick with things like college leavers, people with substantial experience already that can convert into the industry. I think the Americans do it better in golf, the degree situation with going and doing a, a management and, and agronomy degree and getting the jobs there. We've got to look into that sector and make sure we've got the right almost conversion courses to attract people with a, a predisposition potentially to work outdoors and work in turf, but that, that, have, that have gone further in their school career. Martin, just want to pick course, up a couple of points. So um, to echo what Paul was saying earlier, we, we've just done some research. It's not out yet, but I'll give you a, a snippet of it. For the sports turf sector, it was about 35% of people coming into this sector did it because they were already interested in sports. So it kind of backs up, I think, what, what you were saying. The, the other thing we've been doing for a number of years is um, we publish IG salary scales. So we go out and research the market. Just by show of hands, how many people have heard of this or uses it? So probably half, half the room. So half have, half haven't. That's part of the problem, you see. Um, there's a historical base, I think, for salaries in this industry, and it's come from the public sector on, on our side of the fence. So um, when you're looking at this issue of apprenticeship funding, the starting salary, the, the issue is actually the median in the middle. And it's also at the top. If you just take a live issue right now, uh, how many people have seen the Twickenham advert right now for the head groundsman role? So how many people think £60,000 without a house in London for a stadium like that is a good marketable salary? Because I think there's a real real difference coming through now. There's iconic stadiums like Carl's working at Wembley, all, all these stadiums, and probably I have to sort of talk about probably the top six clubs in the, in the Premier League who get into Europe. You look at the top cricket venues, you look at Wimbledon. I think we need to do another body of research for that group because I think they are world leaders now. It's not just about domestic UK um, salaries, it's about how do you stand globally in that market yeah. and um, I think the guys are under so much pressure, they're live entertainment venues all the time, it's not <coughs> just built for football's sake anymore the venues have to do 24-7 entertainment, so I think we now need to go out and take off a salary cap that does exist at the moment and unblock that <coughs> and then get real salaries, we shouldn't be losing Paul Burgess to Madrid because he's got a higher salary, or Jonathan to Paris. Yeah. We should be paying for them in this country now, and that's the thing that we're going to go away and invest in. Well, it certainly seems recognised that you know, our groundsmen are leading the world, and they're being poached left, right and centre, as we say, so that needs to be recognised with their own, own, own industry, and that value needs to be promoted. I think yeah. the amount of money they spend in footballers as well is unbelievable, so yeah. to, to spend a tiny amount on a... It's a lot of money, you know. Yeah, for, for, see, a couple well, hundred doesn't, grand. Or doesn't, it's not just groundsmanship, unfortunately. If you look at the, the, the structure of a club, it goes on players' wages. Mm -hmm. um, one of the jobs I had in the Football Foundation was looking at every club's budget um, because they were coming in for grants, and then some were running at 200% over, over and above expenditure. So they're all chasing a rainbow, but what they don't do is they don't pay for the receptionist desk, they don't mm -hmm. pay for the groundsman teams. And that psychology has <coughs> got to change. And as you say, there's enough money swimming about in the Premier League. wages for most of these guys, really. Yeah. yeah, but there's also an attitudinal shift with the owners of the clubs. Because until very recently, they haven't really, let's be honest about it, um, really thought about the turf as the altar of everything else. So we've got a whole hearts and minds job to do, which is still going to take a long time. I mean, even Man City, it's, you talked about headcount. I'm pretty sure, Roy... You didn't get the right head count when that academy was built, did you? So, so I think we've got to turn back and say, if you want the quality, you've got to pay the money. Simple as that. And, we, and we've got to make it a more prevalent, um, a thought-through 
business decision by these owners. I don't want to preempt the next question if it is on the list, but that we talked, Chris talked before about the fact that the education is not just about the practitioners, it's about the employers, and there's a huge part Absolutely. to do that. Yeah. My name is uh, Alex Tolton from, from Intelligent Place. So, um, I employ apprentices every, every single year, um, mo mainly to be um, electrical or electronic engineers. There's actually a, um, a standard that the college come to us with when we take on an apprentice. So they basically do the interview process for us, um, for the students that have, that have registered an interest, you know, there's there's loads of, loads of apprentices is wanting um, opportunities in, in in that particular sector. And when we take them on, we um, firstly there's a grant. So I mean, I don't know if there's an opportunity to be able to get a grant for this space from, you know, maybe from the FA or the RFE or, or look at some some kind of contribution towards, um, not necessarily employers, but to, to put people to you know take going into those jobs roles, you know, such as what they do with teachers and you know in the army and that that kind of thing. Um, but as part of this structure that we sign up to. Um, there's a set rate for the first year, and then the then the apprentice would have a, an exam at the end of that year. If they pass that exam, then they get a set pay rise. So we know this when we when we take the student on. You know, after a year, they're going to be better, more skilled. You know, more more educated than, than when they started. So um, we don't have a problem with paying them that that pay rise. And that 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 scale is set out for for four years. Now that goes from probably around about ten thousand pounds to start off with. But by the time they're qualified, you know, they're probably up over, over £20,000. And, um, and we end up with a, with a good member of staff who's motivated, as educated, has passed all their exams, you know, because they're, they're incentivised to do so. And I'm just wondering if, if that process is, you know, in, in some way, shape or form existing in the industry. And if it's not, you know, if, it, if you think it would be a, a, a good way of attracting talent. Alison, do you want that one? Uh, <laughs> it doesn't exist in the industry. Um, it may exist in individual um, organisations, but there isn't a standard like that. Okay. I, th I think it would be a good idea to have something like that, but it's, it's, it comes back down to affordability and whether organisations can, can do that and whether the resources are there. And as Paul's saying, that's a struggle at times. Yes, yeah. Uh, we have, if, if a member of staff comes in unqualified, we will train them MBQ level two, then three, and at that point they'll get a certain wage, uh, and then we will earmark certain courses for them, which we can pull out of the levy as well. Um, we've got a huge pot that comes from the levy, but when you get past the three, there isn't that much that you can really go to that, pull, that you can pull out of that. Um, the next set of courses are management, and not everybody is in that management position. And that's where I feel that we do lack, is that next level, as you said, what we can put in there that you can claim out of the levy to improve the knowledge of groundsmen, not just yeah. at a higher level. Yeah. And that's, that's something that you know, Jeff and I have been talking about, is can we put together a, a, an apprenticeship at level three for people who've got that first step on the ladder of doing some kind of site supervisory work. It doesn't have to be supervising staff, it can be supervising a project. Um, and then, and, and I think there could be a, a good demand for that. Um, and then stepping up to people more like in yourself, you know, your sort of position, you know, or, or Lee or Roy at Man City, you know, think about people in at level five qualification, those people who are, you know, putting together papers for boards and working on, you know, some bigger budgets, those sorts of things. But we do need to write something very bespoke for the industry that will work. Otherwise, you know, you won't get the take up and, uh, and it, it, it just won't, it won't work for us. At this point, I'm going to bring... Uh, Chris Horn from the Research Engine in. Uh, Chris is monitoring what we're getting in on our app in the room here, as well as questions from people that can't attend that wanted to be involved. Chris, have you got anything to, to share with us? Yeah, actually, Wimbledon was mentioned uh, just now, and we've got a question from uh, Neil at the All England Lawn Tennis Club. Um, the panel might feel they've answered this already, I don't know, but I'll, I'll read his question. He says, 
We work in an environment that is bespoke and very high profile. As an industry, why don't we do more to promote this and have a salary scale that reflects the risk versus reward? I think we've kind of touched on the salary scale, but what about the promotion side? Jeff, you've, you've mentioned you well, know, you're undertaking some stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think there is a lot of promotion. I mean, Neil, Neil sits on our board, so he knows well what, what we're doing. Um, but I think, um, I mean, Neil's an interesting one. Wimbledon gets two weeks' focus. And I've seen Neil in the last seven years become the focus in two of the tournaments, unfortunately, because of probably a lack of knowledge. One was, if you remember, players slipping over and blaming everybody apart from them, themselves. Yeah, um, and um, it, 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 is, it is like living in a goldfish bowl for those two weeks for that, that team of staff. And I've, I've come from the tennis background. I've worked in it for, for many years. I just saw Graham and his team at Queen's Club last week, um, you know, running on and off during the rain. I, I do think, as I said earlier, I think one of the problems we've got is a historical legacy issue. So when people talk about salaries, the traditional base for salaries has been the public sector for groundsmanship. And the jobs have always been compared against other jobs in that kind of sector. With the advent of TV going global, this is where I think people like Neil are coming from. And I, I think he's, he's got a case, and we've, we've talked about this personally anyway, is that I think you need to put a new bar and a threshold on what uh, a salary should be if you're working in that bubble, in that, that environment now. So definitely we're, we're behind that. And I know our board are actually going to back it with research cash. So we're going to do our own mini study into that. And we're quite happy to come back in a year and tell you how that's gone. But, but it needs buy-in from people. One of the problems we've actually had is that people are reluctant to talk about their salaries too. So we can only help you if you help us. Mm. Um, Obviously, it's anonymous, but um, we do need a two-way street on that in order to make good cases and good evidence. Um, but we've, we've got to change the culture of thinking. Um, you know, it's an interesting one in Wimbledon. I, I know for a fact that the, one of Neil's points is they won't give him the title director. Right, OK. So why not? But they won't give him the title director. Probably if they give him the title director, Neil will be quite a lot happier. But I know he's not because they won't give him the title director. Okay. On that topic, Martin, we <coughs> did a similar piece of research last year. Um, probably the biggest bit of research we've done on salaries in greenkeeping, I would say, ever. We had just over 500 course managers uh, respond with details of, of their salary and, and the facility they manage and the size of their team and the education standards of the team. Um, and it's enabled us to create a tool which will launch, hopefully, the end of this summer. Um, for the first time, we're going to have a salary recommendation calculator for the industry. Um, and we have had in golf for, I think, I think many years ago, it was the bigger rates before my time, and they were kind of largely scoffed at because it was seen as the, the men themselves setting their own salaries. No employer looked at that, so we formed something called the Independent Committee for Golf Club Salaries, which is sat on by non-greenkeepers, um, and they make a set of recommendations, but effectively they're based only on geography. So you should earn the same at a five-star championship course in Liverpool as you would at a, at a municipal course, which clearly doesn't work. So the new tool, um, which we're pretty proud of, I think is giving out some really genuine recommendations. It would be interesting to apply the same logic to Twickenham, because I think, you know, looking at what we've done in ours, that will be coming up substantially higher than that, at a facility of that, of that prestige. Um, I know that we're going to get a lot of golf clubs look at it and go, and, you know, we're, we're paying this and we're going to carry on paying this. But it's surprising how many clubs are now coming to us saying we're struggling to, for staff or we don't know you know, quite where to pitch this job, what should we do? And we've not been able to point at the right level of insight to give them good advice until now. So I, I think we're going to have some of what Neil was asking, the ability to promote 
the right salary for the right role. Okay. Chris. Yeah, leading on from um, this, we've got an interesting question, which again is about, um, I think, educating the wider world and the stakeholders. Um, it's from Neil Harvey of the Hurlingham Club. He says, how do we educate the various governing bodies about the tremendously challenging job all turf professionals face in the light of comments such as Mark Ramprakash's recent interview? I think this was where Mark, having just left as England batting coach, blamed the lack of England batsmen coming through on, on poor county pitches. Okay. Jeff, do you want yeah, to bring that to, one up? Yeah, I have to take that. Um, well, that, that happened just around the time we had a board meeting, so Gary Barwell came and had a chat with us. And uh, we, we worked with Gary and we sent a letter straight back to the ECB about Mark Ramprakash's comments and the bugger's got sacked, hasn't he? So <laughs> it probably worked. Um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, I think it, it, the whole reason being serious about that, I mean, Gary came to represent 17 other senior ground staff working in cricket. And I think that was the straw that literally broke the camel's back at that point in time. Um, cricket has gone through so many structural changes, it still is. You know, the, the game itself is in so many different formats with an, yet another one about to come in. And I think what, what I can see is nobody's actually looked at the impact on the infrastructure that puts those games on. So it used to be test match cricket, or it used to be 50 over cricket. Now it's 2020 and 100 over cricket coming through. Has anybody thought about what time does the groundsman actually go home? Probably not when they design those competitions. And that's, there's a real issue that, that, again, you've got a battle in, in that particular sport right now, so you can actually understand the frustration. Um, <clears throat> I think, again, it comes back to what I said earlier. We, we are looking at how we create good role models, good case studies, and present back out in a positive way uh, the work these cricket guys are doing in, in that particular field. In the tennis one, it's interesting Neil's raising that because there is an initiative already in tennis which is set up by Neil Stubbley which is anybody who's got a grass uh, court venue can be a part of, and the LTA and the All England Club are backing that with, with cash. Okay. So it's all about advancement of knowledge and um, getting, getting on a pathway. Um, so I'm a bit surprised if Neil doesn't know about that, he probably should have a, have a chat with Neil Stubbley. I, I feel from our sector we're quite often let down by PGA professionals, especially on television, European tour, etc. behaviour. And it does affect the greenkeepers. I think recently everyone's seen Bryson DeChambeau and Sergio and uh, taking chunks out of bunker faces and stuff. And I think our governing bodies need to do more to clamp down on that. Uh, harsher punishments. Cause <coughs> it's, these guys, as you were saying, they don't know what time they leave at night. I mean, I've worked with some teams that are, are there till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Season. They're up at three in the morning and this goes on for the whole week. And when, when you see that happen, it's really demoralising and demotivating. Uh, and I, I think from RNA and European Tour should come down harsher on that, and it would be good if they could. Um, Paul, I think Arsene Wenger was quite supportive as a as a manager of his, his grounds team, and he's certainly shown that with some of the stuff he said about people after you know they've gone on to to other things. Do you feel that Arsenal gets as a club recognises the work that you guys are doing, or do you think it could still improve? Um, I think now the manager has left. We're in that. Uh, the same situation as a lot of other football clubs where there's a lot more inconsistency now. Right. Uh, the manager had uh, a vision for everything where now the new manager is coming is purely about football. So we have a lot more people involved, which also brings with it a lot more accountability. And that's the thing that a lot of people in our industry, or probably outside the industry, don't realise. It's like player injuries, the assets that we have on the playing surfaces. 
it's our responsibility to give them the best surface we possibly can. Um, I believe the technology now we've got out there that is going, it really will help us make sure that we can justify what we're actually doing. So then when it's someone who's got a high level of accountability comes and questions, so like the cricket, oh, this isn't right, this isn't, we've got the information to come back to them and say, yes, well, there you go, this is, we are doing our job correctly. Okay. Chris, anything else you got? Yeah, we've, we've got one or two questions coming from the Myosco people. The, the first one, I think, from your people was, um, are sports turf qualifications going to be standardised uh, across the college, IOG and bigger? I think that, that is part of our problem of what I was saying right at the beginning about do people understand the difference between a further education, higher education and apprenticeships and what are the progression pathways through? So take something like a, a master greenkeeper, what does master mean? Yeah. It, it's, it's very well understood in greenkeeping industry, but somebody outside of greenkeeping um, it might think, well, is that a master's level? We have a master's level, which is very different at level seven. So I think that that, that clarification and understanding, and that's something that, again, Jeff and I and, and Jim have talked about, how do we help provide that clarity? Because you, you, you're never going to have a standard set of qualifications, but what we have to do is make sure that people understand what the equivalencies are yeah. in both groundsmanship, greenkeeping, what is a level one academic qualification equivalent to a level two academic, level three, a level equivalent, level four, first year degree, you know, level five, foundation degree, level six, full honours degree, up to your master's level. Actually, we need to understand where the CPD fits in with the academic qualifications um, and the sector-based sort of um, qualifications as well. Okay. And I think that's, that's a piece of work, I think, that we need to do. And you think they can be married up and can be... Yeah, so in, in our case, the pitch grading I talked about earlier, so the educational yeah. is, isn't limited to IG qualifications. So every step of that pyramid, it could be you take your qualification in MySco, um, and that, that would count at the same level as ours. I think what we've got to do is look at how the, how the translation between, if you want to go from greenkeeping into sports turf or vice versa, I think that needs a little bit more uh, work through. But in terms of the sports turf element of it, it could be Reeseath, it could be any, anywhere that, that you do. It could be pitch care, do qualifications as well. Anything that, that is um, of, of a level, and generally you're looking at level MVQ2, probably level, level 3. That, that's where you're looking at the bulk of the activity probably in our sector. But actually what we're trying to do is, is push everybody through. So this, this isn't an overnight fix, by the way. It's going to take ongoing commitment, you know, 10 years plus probably, but what we're trying to do is make today's level twos enter at a level three in the future. So we upskill all the time. Um, it's, it's always about pushing the envelope a little bit and just trying to get more broadly uh, rounded, qualified people with experience into the industry and, and through it as well. Um, I mean, there's one other thing I just want to say that the research we've just picked up is it's a bit of a repeat of uh, what we call the hidden profession. This one we've called the vital profession. Um, and it is vital because what we found is the same ground staff are still in the industry, but they're just 10 years older. Yeah. And as Roy was saying, if you can't get those people to come through and replace Roy and the Steve Braddocks of this world and everybody else, then we've got a real problem. And, and, our, and our estimation coming off the back of this research is we've got about five years to fix this problem. If we don't start fixing it now, you're in dire straits. Okay. So it's urgent. It's urgent, yeah. 
Jim, do you think that's achievable, that, that standardisation? Well, uh, clarification, should we say? I, I, think, I don't think it's necessarily achievable. I think it's inevitable. We're chatting with, with Lee before from, from Alison's team around the way the government are trying to kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe streamline education and try and, uh, try and remove some of the confusion, not least because it will save some costs without too much diversification of qualifications. I think over the next few years the, there will be quite strong consistencies between the level twos, level three, level five that, that, that both industries are putting together. A lot of the knowledge within it is the same. Um, I think there's a parochialism in greenkeeping. We're trying to maintain bespoke qualifications that we can sell as being the right things for, for the greenkeeping industry. But, but in reality, a lot of the content is the same. So I think it's inevitable. Hello, um, my name's Scott. I'm uh, from Green Mayor Golf Club, uh, obviously golf course background. I just, in the future, do you think you see Bega and IOG being formed as one team? And is it possible? Oh, Ooh, that's, that's a, okay. Who wants to answer that one? I, I was going to bring a bottle of champagne for whoever asked that question. Yeah. So you get the champagne for that. Do you, do you mean as one, one body or working together to help publicise the yeah. industry? Yeah, so we can bring young kids through uh, as a one body rather than trying to go two different ways and then they can decide what they want to do from there. Okay. Well, one of the association heads should pick that one up. Who wants to volunteer first? Okay. Go on then, Jeff. All right. So um, I don't know whether you know the history, but we, we went through a merger discussion quite a few years back, just before Jim arrived, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we, we did get to a point where the IG signed that, that move off. And uh, I have just been looking at our articles, funny enough, of our own association. And it's written in the articles, and I've got a copy in here if you don't believe me. I'll show you outside. <laughs> we, we are allowed to, if we think it's in the best interest of the Institute, merge with anybody. So there's your answer. Okay. Jim? Yeah, as I, said, I, I just missed those talks. And then the first time Jeff and I met, I think we actually first we met properly on a golf course, and we had a chat about it, and we agreed we might part of that discussion for a few years. We had a few other fish to fry. Um, what I would say in terms of where Bigger sits at the moment, I think the biggest challenge we as an association face and, and our members face is the recognition and appreciation they get from their employers, um, which isn't clearly high enough. It is for certain people in this room, uh, but not for the, for the, the masses. Um, our view currently isn't that we will improve that uh, situation by diluting our message to join with sports turf it's that we focus diligently on getting into the golf industry as far as we can our relationships now with with the rest of our sport are stronger than they've ever been and we're we're trying to force that recognition down through the governing bodies into the employers because it can't always come from the from the greenkeeper up there's got to be pressure down yep. and so we're very much focused on we are part of the golf industry with a turf element of the golf industry so a merger is not on our cards right now but and the, but i think there is and we've met to discuss this there is certainly strong mileage in sharing our knowledge and working together on projects that, that do benefit both parties well we've seen evidence of that the conversations yeah. around yeah. Alison, and i think um what about working together in some way to publicise you know, what's good and those, those yeah. case studies that no, perhaps Jeff was talking right. about yeah. and put that through other media? You've both got your own yeah. magazines. There's other trade magazines out there, one that we <laughs> we're associated with here today. Um, but there's also the, the widestream media as well. Yeah. That's I, I know when a, when a group like this gathers, there, uh, there's a few golf guys on the front here, but they spend much of the day chatting to the guys from football and cricket yeah. and others about all the differences and all the similarities and I think both of us have, have put things in our own magazines around people that work across sports. Okay. 
Chris, have we got anything else coming? Uh, yeah, another one coming from um, David's students from uh, Myersco <coughs> is, are the pitch advisors here to stay? Hmm. I've got Jason in the audience who can <laughs> answer that better than me. <laughs> the uh, programme that we've got, if, if that's what you're talking about, we've, we've got a programme, just, just to give the context and background, where we get uh, grant funding in, money in, money out, uh, which is uh, set up a team of 11 people, which is led by Jason in the audience, uh, which is just covering England, uh, working with the Football Association and the England Wales Cricket Board uh, to invest knowledge and understanding in, in investment into the voluntary club sector. Um, the FA have indicated that they are in it for uh, 10 years now. They want to turn around 20,000 natural turf pitches over the next 10 years. Although the, are we in year 8 or are we in year 10 now? I can't remember. No, it changes every week. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, there, is a, there is a sea change right now, I think, with the FA's um, understanding of this sector. Um, I think it's taken a while to get them to understand it in the way that we would expect them to understand it from the outset. And there's always work to do on that. But they are serious about solving the problem of natural turf provision in the voluntary sector. Um, but I think there's also issues for the industry as well. It's looking at the quality of uh, contracting looking at the availability of that type of thing. As, as you raise knowledge, what we're finding is some clubs aren't prepared for that change. So it's a bit lastminute.com in a lot of voluntary clubs. So they get to the end of the season and they suddenly think, I've got to do something about the pitch before next season. So it's what you've got in professional football at the moment you need to educate people about and it needs to become year-round thinking so it's not an adjunct. Um, and I think that's what... Jason's team's really, really been finding out. I mean, Jason, you've seen 3,000 pitches now? Yeah, uh, it's more than that, it's uh, 5,000 plus. But yeah. I think one key message to get across is that five years ago, there was no investment at grassroots from the governing bodies. They started with 1.4 million. This phase, which is 2017 to 21, is 2.4 million. So we're looking for phase three from 21 onwards, and we're hoping to increase that investment. That's across all sports. So that, I think. That's a key message to get across. There is investment being put in by the governing bodies and it should be, they should be commended. Chris? Yeah, coming back to um, getting young people into the uh, industry, I've got an anonymous question here from somebody. Um, it says, education, I think he means education in the widest sort of national sense, yeah. has been all about technology rather than outdoor activities for the past 20 years. Is it the case that the, we have a generation of people who have lost all connection with outdoors jobs i quite often watch my kids and see how they they interact and they're obsessed with technology and i kind of think that's the way it's going just now so it's maybe like going back to roy's thing it's maybe a really good way to get into these kids heads that's a great career is showing them the technology and what we use on a daily day basis are moisture meters or weather stations and because they really, really like that side of it so what's to stop us kind of promoting that a little bit and uh, showing off what we're doing because it's robot robotic mowers etc you know it's uh, we were talking about robotic line markers this week with yeah. one of the football guys and that's just blown my mind i didn't even know there was such a thing and uh yeah we're tapping into that kind of side of the market uh, i think in, in advertising it's a really exciting job for kids who are it's the way the world's going, and it's the way I think we could maybe get them into it. Paul, have you got anything on that one from the... Yeah, I would agree. It's yeah. one of those things where if the way it's going, if we don't get the staff in, we will be looking at autonomous equipment that will do the role. It's unfortunate that's the way it's going to go. So, as in managers, will you be managing staff or will you be managing equipment? Mm. And that's where you'll end up. So, 
it will get kids in because they're managing it, but all the other side, no one will be doing the work yeah. because these mowers will be doing that. Where's your expertise going to come from then? <laughs> yes, it's, it's managing equipment and also staff, um, but then it's the work-life balance. Work-life balance is one of the things I believe people don't want to come into this industry. So if we can get equipment that can help us to manage that so everybody's not doing as many hours, but we've still got staff to do all the other things that come with the role, so HR, um, health and safety, um, managing staff, developing staff, toolbox talks that we all have to do. There's so much more that comes into the role now than what it was 10, 15 years ago. So I see it as a positive that the equipment's coming in because all my other staff need to do other parts of their role, which 10 years ago never sure. did. Sure. Yeah. Alison, you probably will have an opinion on this one, do you? Yeah, I think, I think when, as educationalists, it's our responsibility as well to, to make education as, as interesting as we can for young people. And you're saying, you know, you know teenagers are you know, stuck on their Xbox, you know, in the evenings, things like that. One of the things that we've started to do some trials with in this last year is virtual reality. Right. And we've been trying it a whole range of sectors, including with some of our sports turf students who, who are here in this room today. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what aspect they've actually used virtual reality with, but take something like um, an engineering student, they can learn something like welding skills um, and learn the practical health and safety elements of it in a very safe environment before they go out and do it. The same way you could use that in something like you know, pesticide use right. um, in a very safe environment and a protected way before you actually go out and do it. So we've been using those kinds of um, things and tr just trying different ways of learning and using that technology as a, as a positive tool rather than it being as something as a negative. Your, is it schools into stadiums? Do you, yep. do you focus on any technology in that side of things? Yeah, we use Pythagoras theory for the corner spot. <laughs> <laughs> Um, joking apart, though, we, we've actually worked on the 14-year-old on the age group, so they're yeah. just going into GCSE science. And what we've done is we, we do... We, I mean, Paul's been involved in it, so he's seen it in action. In fact, you did the first one, didn't you? Yes. Um, basically, we have stations set up during the day that these kids come around, but we link it all to the science curriculum. So, you know, we have a bag of grass seed, you look at the nitrogen mm -hmm. content or whatever. So without thinking about it, they're actually still doing their science curriculum, but yeah. we're actually engaging them in the industry. The, the, the fun bit for them seems to be when they get on the pitch at the end of the day and walk around under the lights, think they've got yeah. a suntan, don't they? <laughs> um, so it, it was a good way of, of bringing people in. And, and I've, I've been to a lot of these now. And I, I'd say on average we're getting 30 to 40 kids. We work with the football and the community um, staff as well. So they, they're the ones that, that get the kids in from the schools in the first place because you have to have a reason to allow the kids out these days. So we had to link it to the curriculum. Yeah. Um, but as, as Paul was saying, I, I would say probably, as an average, we get 10% really coming back to these guys at the end of the day going, can I, can I come and volunteer, for example, for a day? Okay. So you're probably looking for every 33 coming up and saying, can I be a volunteer by the end of the day? Now, that's, that's small beer at the moment, and it's something we actually we want to take the, this programme to the Premier League and other, other sports and expand it and actually get some serious backing for it as well. Um, but that's, that's just one time example. The other thing that I think um, kids do, uh, I think of my own son with this, he, he, he went from no knowledge about playing the piano to learning piano about three weeks by going on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the mediums that, that um, weren't accessible to our generation now are. So engaging through YouTube videos and things like that. I mean, the governing bodies, to their credit, are, there's a tw series of, what, 29 videos about to be put together which we're going to have access to 
Uh, all the governing bodies that invested in this is Sport England, rugby, cricket, football, all of these. Uh, they're going to go on all these websites. So they are YouTube videos, effectively. And it will give you bite-sized chunks of how to get engaged in, in groundsmanship. Kind of gets you around this issue of the 16-year-old, because although they're not touching the equipment, they get to see it. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's lots of different ways. And, and then the other thing that just, as you were talking, hit me is if you just look at the prevalence now of apps coming through in our sector. I mean, I think that's how the young, young will engage. They're, they'll just have an app for everything. You know, it will just, just be there. Over like the, next, the, next the Royal years. Navy advert, you know, where it's really exciting to join the Royal Navy. If we could kind of create something like that and we mm. could mix it between the industries. So we could have, like, coming to looking after turf and uh, can, you can show the golf side of it and the tournaments experience you can get and then the technology and then you could go back to the football and the cricket and, I mean, it's, you could make a, create a really good buzz about it, I think. just you, want to say this on, on the campaign that we're about to get into. Um, it isn't just about ground staff, this one. This is about opening up access to the industry, the turf industry. So you could be in sales selling a product. It's anybody who's in this industry we want to engage with and promote back out. So okay. if anybody is interested in this, from any, any part of this sector, come and talk to me. Because that's part of what you were saying. It, it's shown it in its broadest sense. So that people don't think of it as just, it's just a grass cutter industry. There's, there's so much to it now. People mention about the science, the technology all the time. We've got to present it in that way and upsell it, basically, in order to make it attractive in the first place. So whether it's a co carbon copy of Royal Navy or whatever, but we're going to need to do some serious promotion to help get our sector noticed. Paul, you were involved in the first one of the DOGs at Classrooms into Stadiums, and from your point of view, was it a worthwhile exercise? Um, I believe it was, because at that time, we had a lot everybody was really engaged in that day. It's just when everybody goes away, it's how you follow up from that point of view. Um, and what it was the contact, could we get those kids to come in, help us on a match day? And that's where the health and safety thing on our part becomes very, very difficult. But yeah, it's that next stage of how you keep those people interested is the key one and that could be improved. Okay. Yeah. Any suggestions on that? Or from the one is a bit of a safeguard in how you do that within the yeah. community. I mean, I mean, a lot of it isn't about what we're not doing. It's, it's the obstacles that you face when you go try and set yeah, these things right. up. So anything that you're dealing with 14 to 16-year-olds is problematic because of just safeguarding issues, for example. Yeah. Even GDPR now, you know, sharing anybody's data or information these days is just another obstacle you've got to overcome. So what you've got to do is work out what the obstacles are before you put your programme in place. Paul's right, the sustainability bit, probably in, in this case, would have to come via probably the football and community schemes attached to professional football clubs yeah, because sorry, they have qualified yeah. staff yeah. in there that have got those skills and those qualifications to do that. So we do continue, so we do have the community, different yeah. groups come in, right. um, not with the ILG but just no. on our own, okay. they go around the stadium, see what we do, um, so we, do we have continued to do that, okay. but what's so that come process... off the back of that... Yeah. As in people being interested has been... Very little. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that's, again, for a high-profile club like Arsenal. So do you think it's the job that's unattractive and that's really what we ought to build up? I guess you're getting people that want to come along and volunteer because they're going to get into a match for free, but are it's, they suitable? Yeah it's, yeah? yeah, it's Arsenal Football Club and that's, yeah. what they, that's what gets them in. But then it's our role and it, that's where the contact after is to really engage those people. If you don't have much contact then that's where it's lost very, very quickly. 
And I think that's one of the things, but as we said, it's not that How simple. How you do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, another anonymous question uh, came in. It comes back to the workload that we talked about, which is part of the image of the job that we sometimes struggle with. The question is, how are we going to educate clubs to restrict or manage excessive weekly working hours and enable loo days or paid overtime to be taken in a busy schedule? I would say that's where we just touched on the autonomous mm -hmm. equipment. Technology in the future will be a benefit to us. I don't think it's there yet, but maybe in five, six years, we'll be able to manage mowing the pitches without as many staff so then people can have time off or do other jobs so yeah for me that's where i think it's a the technology will help us so from your point of view you're not looking at that autonomy to be a cost saving you're looking at improving Standard. okay there'll be a cost saving yeah. but you'll still have the same amount of in my eyes hours yes. from yeah. people to the, the intensity other. that yeah. i see football growing it is it's unbelievable our budgets don't grow to the same yeah. speed so then we need technology to be able to keep up to that level. James, you want to yeah, come I, I, mean, I can imagine like in a football pitch, you can just let a mower keep going and then, but whereas at a golf course, they're a little bit different, especially hours with public dog walkers and stuff. So uh, I kind of find it hard to, to do that and we've discussed it a lot. But uh, yeah, uh, Lua hours, I mean, it's really up to the, the, the management to gain the, the, the trust from the club and saying, oh, well, we can do a certain amount this week, but you're not always going to get that kind of thing. And we've went this year to an annualised hour system where uh, the boys can work as much as they want and just giving them the time back in the winter, etc. I mean, you don't have that in the football, really. But yeah. it's, uh, that's a difficult one, really. With, you know, yeah, my staff have, they, they fill out a Be Heard survey every single year. Right. So work-life balance, the club, how it's moving forward. Um, and then I have to react from that each year. So it, it can be difficult because the pressures that are put on myself just continue to increase. Then I have to manage my staff's work-life balance and that's where that survey every single year. So yeah, and that's where I've been marked how we can make it better is the technology that comes in. And it's definitely the most important thing is making sure your staff don't burn out and, and making sure they're happy at work. And if the guys are happy, guys and girls are happy at work, then they'll do a really good job and they'll, you'll get kind of longevity out of them as well. Good quality of work. I think we've got a bit of a, an issue here as well in terms of uh, there's, there's two things. First of all, um, we work in an industry that quite often celebrates overwork. So, you know, you'll you'll see a lot on social media. My team have been amazing. They've done a, a hundred hour week. You know, they they shouldn't have to do a hundred hour week, but but you work in an environment where because it's club championship in golfing terms, or if it's a you know some this time of year for you guys when you're rolling re renovating pitches or whatever else yeah. and somehow or other rather than our employers recognizing that what you should really be doing is paying more staff to to deal with that burden it's just it's to our detriment i think that greenkeepers and groundsmen go don't worry i will set the alarm for three in the morning and then yeah. work till 11 and do this and and damn near kill myself we're creating health and safety challenges in some of that things we celebrate we're we're like guilty of this at bigger we we send 50 odd volunteers in open championship um why should the world's greatest golf tournament have 50 volunteer greenkeepers making sure the golf course is okay? Why shouldn't they pay 50? Yeah. It's actually a brilliant opportunity. Yeah. Most people in here have done it, and it's great, and we love it. But there's something wrong there, isn't it? When, I don't know whether yeah. you know, Tesco's don't rely on volunteers <laughs> to make sure that the Christmas period is managed. You know, it just doesn't seem to, to work. No, I get your point. So there's, a, there's an ethos in there that, um, that we've got to work with, and there's two responsibilities as always. There's our responsibility as we work with the governing bodies and things. There's also our members. And I remember there was a, a comment made at the last event that you ran 
I think the gentleman's here um, from, a, from a football club about he's had his budget cut by substantially, but his boss had told him, but there can't be any deterioration in quality. Mm. And we've got to be tougher in saying that just simply that, that you know, science proves that can't happen. Yeah. You know, money in equals product out. And there's, I think we've got to equip our members with the ability to actually have those conversations. You were saying it there and you were about explaining to employees that you can't just keep getting more. How many people in here have had their team reduced? over the years because of the recent economy challenges or whatever. Roy's saying his four members are staff short, but I know Roy's standards. He's, he's not going to let the pitch drop, which means Roy's probably, well, he hasn't got any hair to pull out, but he's pulling out, <laughs> he's pulling out what hair there is to, to, to drive it on. Um, you know, at some point we've got to say no more. Um, and that, 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 I think, is a serious industry challenge to stop saying, stop allowing our employers to actually say, it's okay, I've cut the guy's team, but the course is still great. Why would I, why would I increase it again? Education again, isn't it? Yeah, but it's education up, not yeah, education. Exactly. Yeah. The broader sense of education. Yeah.